0: This is Scott, this is Stephen, and this is The Poppable Podcast, where we share proven strategies and talk with industry experts to help you grow your pop-up business. Welcome back to The Poppable Podcast with Stephen Brooks and myself, Scott Blair. This week, we are hosting our guest, Andy Balin. He is the founding partner of 3PE Consulting, and he provides services for retail, consumer product, franchise, and e-commerce companies ranging in size from multi-billion dollar businesses to startups, with a keen focus around pop-up store programs. So Andy, why don't you introduce yourself and help us to get to know you? Sure. Thanks,
1: Scott. I'm very glad to be here. I've been in uh, the retail business, a little bit on the CPG side, but mostly in the retail business for over 30 years and actually started doing pop-ups way back in the late 1980s before the term pop-up store was ever coined. I was running a small chain of toy stores and I would drive around the market that we operated in looking for empty spaces at Christmas. And when we found a space, we negotiated a, a low ball deal. We filled the store with toys. Piled up on brown boxes, put a register in, and then sold a bunch of that left after Christmas. Doing pop ups at scale in a little bit more of a refined manner actually started when I was the EVP at Party City. We had planned out a Halloween temporary store initiative, and then started taking on real scale at KB Toys. I had gone there as a turn CEO in the turnaround situation. We didn't have money to open new stores, so we used pop-up stores because of the low-cost model to drive incremental growth to the business, top-line, bottom-line. And then after KB, went to Toys R Us and did a very large program there where we did 90 stores the first year, 600 plus the second year, and grew the pop-up business from zero revenue to over $200 in about 18 months. And I've been doing uh consulting work in the world of pop-ups ever since just based on that experience at scale
0: that's great arguably we've got between uh you Andy, and Stephen brooks we may have some of the two premier uh pop-up consultants here in the united states right now On today, you absolutely
1: so. do i don't know why you we may come on
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely and i'm not going to decide who's number one who's number two either you guys can fight that out later <laughs> but. Well, um, it's the good looking go one, in, Scott, you. you know, that we'll call, a
2: we'll, call it a tie. we'll call it a tie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tie. I'm, I'm fascinated by your career and I've watched it with, uh, in awe. I can tell you. I appreciate and, that. And so d- d- talk around the, like pop-ups before, cause you mentioned turnarounds and, and over inventory for me, I think is a, is a big thing right now as well, but who are the people do you think in business right now should be looking at doing pop-ups? So there's a wide
1: range of people that pop-ups could work for. Your point's very valid that uh, pop-ups can be a great way to sell off excess inventory and get a very strong return on it, as opposed to other means of disposing of inventory. My experience has been, there's two ways to do pop-ups. One is for profit, when you're selling stuff and you want to make Mm -hmm. money and walk away with, with a profit. In the other way as from a marketing standpoint, where it's really an expense on the marketing line of the P&L for whatever company um, mm-hmm. may be doing it. And there are big companies like Samsung, uh, Microsoft that have done it as a pure play marketing effort. My take is I always prefer to do it for profit because I found that the companies that do it for profit and sell something... Generate revenue and, and four wall uh, contribution, still get all of the marketing benefits that mm-hmm. the pure play marketers do. You get the buzz, you get, you build consumer awareness, you could launch a new product line, whatever the case may be. Um, but you're still not only offsetting the cost of the pop up, but you're making money at the end of the day. In terms of who it makes sense for, one is existing retailers. That want to grow or without investing in permanent real estate, or they want to test potential permanent real estate locations without making a five or ten year commitment to mm-hmm. those locations. Mm. Two is digital sellers. There's there's a real convergence happening in the world of um, you know selling to the consumer today, where you know simplest way to say it is in this day and age you have to serve the consumer. Wherever she wants to be served, so more and more digital sellers are shifting into testing, trying, and executing physical retail initiatives. I guess it would be a definition of the term omni-channel. Third would be manufacturers that don't want to rely on selling to retailers. There's obviously a margin impact when you sell to a reseller. There's a large group of manufacturers that want to go. Uh, direct-to-consumer, and they're doing it both online as well as in physical environments. And again, the nature of the pop-up model is that it's low cost, low risk. It's easy to get into. There's no long-term commitments. And if it works well, any one of these different companies, types of companies, can scale from that point. Um, We've worked with service providers as well to promote a service. But the real, the big three is uh, physical retailers, digital retailers, and manufacturers all wanting to find a way to reach
2: new consumers in a cost-effective manner. I'm sure, like me, you you end up busting lots of myths about pop-up retailing because people think it's just for it's just for the big boys. You know, you were mentioning kind of Samsung and and Microsoft to do the experiential. Yeah, but the the thing about the, the modern industry is it can work for really small retailers as well, as you say, that, that sure. online yep. to inline, as Scott and I have been saying. What, what's your thoughts around that? Is is there a way that smaller brands can come together and, and work I, I, in a pop-up environment um, like curated brands? We, we had one on just a few weeks ago.
1: Yeah. There's, there've been a bunch of companies that have tried curated retail environments, typically under kind of that temporary umbrella. What I've, several of them have gone away, not all of Mm -hmm. them, and some do it well, but what I found is that you're not merchandising a store when you're trying to curate multiple brands. It's very opportunistic in whichever brands happen to be in a particular geographic environment Mm -hmm. and decide to come together, end up working together, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a cohesive offering for the consumer. One of the things that I don't think a lot of people understand about pop-ups is you could go as large or small as you want, and you could work on all different types of budgets, including relatively small budgets, to get into a pop-up environment. Even if you go into, if you have a product assortment that could fill, let's just say, for example, a 1,000 square feet, But you go out and you look at your local market and you can't find any spaces that are below 3,000 square feet. You can and should go out and negotiate a rent cost and occupancy cost based on the 1,000 feet that you need and block off the rest of the space Mm -hmm. and go in and operate your 1,000 square foot store, if you will, in that 3,000 foot box. But it doesn't feel like a 3,000 foot box. The nature of pop-ups, it's Excess inventory from a real estate perspective, and the landlords either have to monetize it somehow or leave it empty through whatever selling season may be Mm -hmm. appropriate for the particular operator um, and end up with no money in their pockets. So they're better off typically making some money than, than none. So you have an awful lot of negotiating leverage, even as a very, very small
0: operator to get into the world of pop-ups. Are you planning your next pop-up shop or event? You already have a pop-up, but it's not seeing the sales that you want? Get insider merchandising and sales strategy tips and techniques that will give you the competitive edge you need to meet your goals. Nicole Sims of Creative Visual Solutions is a retail consultant that specializes in creating tailored pop-up plans for your business. Get the professional help you need, and connect with her at creativevisualsolutions.wordpress.com or check her out on the poppable.com platform in the services section. Is there a dollar figure revenue wise for a brand that they fit? Maybe it's $250,000 in revenue for the past 12 months that becomes the sweet spot of, okay, it's time for you to move from a, an e-commerce Environment and start testing brick and mortar million dollars. What is a general threshold that you would suggest brands to consider? This is a viable opportunity for them to move forward with. Yeah, I, I think it's more about the business
1: that they're running and where they're running it first. So I would, would always tell a business don't get distracted, don't look at the shiny objects out there. Be sure your core business is running properly first. So, for some businesses, we could differ based on the margin structure of a business. If a business is generating eighty percent gross margin versus forty-five percent, that revenue number can flex. But you want to be sure that your business is relatively well established in the channel you're operating in before you say, "Let's go try something new and different." Makes that would be sense. my it, that would be my recommendation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes so sense. So,
0: would there be a an estimated or recommended cost basis for doing a pop up based on revenue, or how do you position that with the brands that you're consulting with? Do go ten percent of your revenue or five percent of your revenue is what you need to allocate for a budget for doing a pop up, or or how does that correlate?
1: It 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 you know the revenue could be all over the place, so that's hard to do. What we do is we build a zero based pro forma for a client, and some of the key elements are. How much revenue are they generating? So we could work with them to make some estimates on sales for the window of time in which they think it makes sense to operate. The other key metric is margin, because margin structure of a business mm-hmm. can really impact the the bottom line. You know, if you're absolutely and that's where a lot of direct to consumer businesses or manufacturers have a great opportunity because they have long margins already embedded in their business. And all of a sudden, instead of, you know, they were a manufacturer they used to selling to retail, all of a sudden they're selling right to the consumer. So they're keeping margin on both sides of the table, if you will. Um, so that's a key element to how you pursue it. But we'll always work with the client to build this up from a zero base. There are never any guarantees in life in terms of what the results will look like. But just to get a level of comfort that, you know, there's an opportunity to not only generate the revenue, but generate the profit, off more than offset their costs, typically offset any consulting fees as well, and still walk away with money in their pocket um, at the end of the day. And yeah, when you open, if you're opening for a relatively extended period in time, meaning two months, three months, could be longer. There are pop-ups I've done that have lasted for years under a pop-up model, believe it or not but when you have that 2 or 3 month window you still have the opportunity to adjust in real time to the offering to the promotions to you know how the business is being executed so even if your initial plans don't necessarily kick in the way you expected there's still enough time to go in and tweak the offering tweak the model to get really on track to where you want to be
2: and and if you're looking to get into pop-up retailing and, and you're looking to find your first location, what, what are the yep. points that people should be looking at to evaluate the location? What's your recommendations around that?
1: So obviously uh, it's location, 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 which is sure. you know old classic saying mm. you want to be um, in front of as many eyeballs as you can. Traffic is going to be critical. And it's, I wrote a piece several weeks ago about location and I referred back to the old saying that if you build it, they will come, but that's not always the case. You want mm-hmm. it if you build it, like in the movie Field of Dreams, many will come, but there's still other things you need to do to build awareness and drive traffic. But you want, yeah. you want eyeballs, you want traffic, you want proper co tenancy. There's a lot, I've seen people go in particular in strip centers, as an example, where they go next to a supermarket where this gets, Tons and tons of traffic, and they thought they were doing a great job. But the supermarket traffic goes into gets groceries and comes yeah. out with groceries that need to get home to be refrigerated, and they're not shopping anywhere else. But they fill mm-hmm. up the parking lot in the meantime. So those that location didn't happen to work very well. The other key element that this is one thing that boy, I would guess eighty eighty plus percent of people I've spoken to about doing pop-ups, clients, potential clients, etc., don't understand is that the rent, the occupancy is highly negotiable, and mm-hmm. people tend to overpay time and time again, thinking that they, know, they don't know what they want to pay at the end of the day. We'll help a client, obviously, with that. But if you're not a client, they don't know what they want to pay. They'll go look at a space. Their landlord might be asking, let's just, for the sake of conversation, for the term in occupancy, they push back and they get it down to $8,000 and they think they've done a great job because they've saved $2,000 in rent. But the reality is given market in negotiating opportunities, they should have been at $5,000. So in Mm -hmm. effect, they're paying $3,000 more than they should be if they truly had some experience, support, helping them negotiate that deal. And that money comes right off the bottom line. So negotiate
2: hard, I guess, is what you're saying.
1: It's a a game of, it's a little bit of a game of chicken and you've got to go back and forth multiple times. It's not a one-time effort. Just like when you go to, you know, buy a car, there's a process that you have to go Mm -hmm. through. And it's the same with with retail commercial landlords is that you're not going to get to the right price, the right cost after one back and forth. It's, you got to go back multiple times.
0: Mm. Yep using consultants makes a lot of sense in that scenario for sure if you do want to try and go it on your own then best case scenario then is to at least get some quotes from multiple locations in the area so you have something Mm -hmm. to work with between those to make some comparisons
1: yeah absolutely be sure those locations are truly apples to apples in terms of traffic and Mm co-tenancy and parking and all that kind of stuff
2: Mm. Yep. Staff is becoming a real challenge for all kinds of businesses right now. Yep. Have you got any recommendations about recruiting or is, is there anything you've done in the past that you've had great success in to bring in temporary staff? So we
1: often rely on using temporary staff for, for pop-ups. There's, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of companies don't want to go through all of the challenges of bringing on additional permanent staff for a short window of time and then mm-hmm. having to phase those people out at the end of two months or three months or whatever yes. the case may be it's important and i've done this over the years i'm sure you have as well to create relationships with uh, high quality staffing businesses yeah. that mm-hmm. you can have a high level of faith in doesn't avoid all the challenges that exist today these are real challenges and they're not you know they're not going to go away for this year hopefully they'll get better as we get deeper into next year. So you really have to work it out. But one of the things that in a couple of situations I'm working on right now, we're working on pulling people from the existing business to help lead the temporary location, kind of backfilling those roles for a few months' time in the existing business. In this way, at least, there's an experienced leader or a couple of leaders in the temporary location to help better you know pr- pr- whether it's hiring temporary staff through an agency or right from the street to better talk about the business and the you know potential future of the business and this could turn fr- from a temporary situation into a long-term situation and really mm-hmm. sell the company to the candidates to hopefully entice them to come on board to these clients versus to somebody else. But it's a, it's certainly a tough
2: challenge. Yeah. I, I think it is important to have somebody from the business kind of actively playing a part in the pop-up, don't you? Yep. Because they, they understand the product, they understand cross-selling and upselling and, and obviously understand where they want to get to. In terms of yep. the, the length of occupancy, we could talk about holiday season and, and all sure. of that. Everybody wants the last, last three months of the year, but. From your experience, is there an optimum time for people doing pop-up retailing? I think services are, are slightly different, but just focusing on retail for a second.
1: Yeah. So for retail, when we went into the Toys R Us initiative, we thought you know in the toy business you make all your money essentially from Thanksgiving through Christmas. Yeah. Um, you 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 rarely make you, you're rarely profitable at any other time of the year. So we thought initially that opening in Mid November and closing a week after Christmas would be optimum. What we found very clearly is that was not optimum, but rather the stores that opened earlier, meaning early September, mid September, produced uh, higher levels of profitability. We believe because they were able to build awareness in the eyes of the consumer over time. Yeah. It's again, it's it's not just build it and they will come. It took a few visits to the shopping center, whatever the shopping center might be, for for customers to be aware that we were there. I'm a believer in two months to three months. We've had great success in extending locations into non-typical times of the year. After we opened up 90 Toys R Us pop-ups, we kept 30 open the following year for the entirety of the year. And again, right. toy stores never make money quote unquote never make money in the first, second, or third quarter. Yet because of the the pop-up model we were operating under, every one of these stores we kept open was profitable for each and every quarter of the year. The expense structure was appropriately lower. And we actually took Mm -hmm. our occupancy down even further than what we paid in Q4 because it was lower traffic levels in Q one one through three. So they could go on and on and on for there's a there's some nuances to extending license deals or lease deals, but you know I've had clients last for three or four years in the particular mm. pop up situation that was originally intended to be three or four months long.
0: So, Andy, I understand that you also have a pop up boot camp that you can take brands through and get them educated, get them prepared for moving into doing pop ups. Do you want to talk about what that course looks like?
1: Sure, absolutely. So it's a virtual boot camp, done entirely online. We're doing them through late September, early October. It's a 90-minute session with two follow-up one-on-one phone calls with each participant. And we'll take each participant through every piece of the pop-up model, from how do you build an economic model to sourcing sites, to what should your assortment plan looks like, to hiring staff. And it's a list of about you know, 15 different deliverables, and it's a great introduction to how to do a pop-up or pop-ups. And the one-on-ones after that will help address any individual questions or opportunities, situations, whatever, that may exist with a particular client. We do them essentially on-demand, meaning that once we get enough interest from a group of participants, we'll schedule a session. There's a number of slots still open between now, the end of September, early October. So anybody could reach out to me at the email address that that you'll provide and I'll be able to share more information with them on that. We also obviously do customized programs for clients, but that's a great way to get a low-cost introduction, the pop-up bootcamp to the world of temporary retailing.
0: Awesome. Yeah, and this is, uh, we're actually sponsoring it through Poppable for this year. So uh, we will link to that in our show notes. So you can uh, get direct access to Andy through that and send that email off and get some more information. Andy, yep. how can people get hold
2: of you?
1: Uh, so they can reach out to me right through email. It's uh, Balin, which is a B as in boy, A-I-L-E-N, at, 3PE, which is a numeral three, P is in Peter, E is in Edward, consulting.com.
0: Andy, thanks for being on today. Really appreciate your insights, and we do look forward to having you on
2: again soon.
1: It's my pleasure, guys. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Andy.
2: You're welcome. Thanks for listening to The Poppable Podcast, brought to you by Stephen Brooks, the pop-up retail expert, and poppable.com the online community marketplace that matches pop-up brands and spaces. If you have any questions for the show, you can email us at questions at poppablepodcast.com or leave us a voice recording at poppablepodcast.com. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe, and we'll both see you next time on The Poppable Podcast.